You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We'd like to thank the Hackable Podcast and ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about both of these later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we're joined today by James Kelly Morningstar, who graduated from West Point in 1983 and served 20 years in the U.S. Army as an armor officer. His tours included duty as a tank platoon leader and company executive officer in West Germany, tank commander in the Gulf War, brigade staff trainer at the National Training Center at Fort Orrin, uh, Fort Orrin in California, the U.S. Army liaison to the U.S. Navy's 2nd Fleet, and battalion operations officer in Birchko, Bosnia. His final assignment was as Chief of Mobilization and Human Resources Command from 2001 to 2004. He has taught at Virginia, Georgetown, Catholic, and the University of Maryland, where he's currently finishing up his PhD in history. He's the author of a new book, Patton's Way, A Radical Theory of War. Welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Thank you for having me. So Patton is one of the most well-known American generals. Uh, you know, the president likes even bringing up Patton, and I can't imagine he has a laundry list of people he knows from the Second World War. And, you know, there's plenty of books out there. There's the Academy Award-winning movie with George C. Scott. So my question sounds weighted, but it's not, and I'm going to kind of tee this up for you. Why do we need another book well, on Patton? You're right. Patton's one of the most well-known guys. When you Google Patton's name and look at how many hits you get, it's incredible how much he uh, outnumbers people like Eisenhower and Bradley and Montgomery. The problem is he's not really understood because there were two patents. There was the mask of command that Patton wore, and it was artificially created and for a purpose. You know, he believed that he had to occupy this persona in order to inspire troops. Then there was the real Patton. Now, he had a secretary named Rosevich who was assigned to him. First time he walks in to see Patton, he sees this guy wearing the smoking jacket and pierced nose glasses and very urbane looking, and he's talking and reciting a speech he wants to give to the Second Armored Division down at Fort Benning. A few minutes later, he rehearses a speech, and then he's the Patton you see in the movies. He's full of all kinds of uh, you know, uh, foul language and all kinds of graphic descriptions and things. Rosevich is shocked. And Patton says, don't be so shocked. What you just saw was an act. You know? And he acknowledged that he had this second persona. The problem is that for historians and for audiences today, 
we see that patent and we don't see the genius patent behind him, the one who created this new way of war. From my experience, I've ran into a lot of you know, young officers who are modeling themselves after that image of patent right. without ever understanding the real patent. And it carries over to historians, it carries over to analysts, it carries over a lot of different communities. And that's why I wrote this book. It's really to kind of correct the public perception, to collect a record yeah. from well, what people think. It started out to make me aware, because I was searching for what made this guy so successful. You know, when um, you read comments from people like uh, Bradley said Patton was a mediocre general, that he was a lousy logistician, and uh, you'd hear Eisenhower say that Patton was uh, of limited value, you know, that the great operations, there's a, there was a historian who was writing about World War II in the 1950s, and he contacts and interviews Eisenhower. And he says to Eisenhower, you know, Patton did all these great things. And Eisenhower corrects him. He says, well, no, Patton did great things when he was being properly guided by others. Right. And so you see all this and hear this discussion. Marshall says Patton descended to buffoonery at times. You compare it to the record, though, of achievement. You know, Patton is a one-man fire brigade for Eisenhower. After Kazarine Pass, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. Ike turns to Patton to rectify it. After uh, the, the stalemate in Normandy, he turns to Patton to break out. After Bastogne, his greatest reversal in our history, he turns to Patton to, to bail him out again. If Patton was this shallow commander, how did he achieve all these great right. accomplishments? And when you look at the war without Patton, you see Kazarine Pass, you see you know, a slugfest in North Africa, you see you know, Italy which is another attrition slugfest. Right. You see you know, the Hurricane Forest, and you see Market Garden. It's not a very right. pleasant picture without Patton. Well, I think there's a lot of revisionist history. People just don't want to think about it or don't know that you know, we, we kicked ass and took names in World War II, and that it was this war that you know, we swept in after Normandy and won the whole thing. Well, it was not going well. No. And there was a lot of soul-searching after the war, which we'll talk about down the road, because of you know major screw-ups that probably cost thousands of lives from these people that we look at as being these genius generals like Eisenhower and like Omar Bradley and others. And there's a several purposes of this. That record of you know uh, rough accomplishment, I'll say, after the war, has to be suppressed for several reasons. One is individuals concerned are going to be president of the United right. States and they have political ambitions, et cetera. Secondly, we're in a Cold War now. And you want this impression that we are invincible, you know, that we really know what we're doing. So other countries experience the same thing, that are in difficult positions. They have to uh, repackage their accomplishments to make them seem more impressive than they are because it's a matter of a real-world survival. And, of course, Patton's not there to to say anything about it. Exactly. Patton dies shortly after the war. All the histories are written after that. Even Patton's own book, War As I Knew It, was, was... compiled by his wife from his various writings pulled together and in that he does you never see him explain his real method behind what he was accomplishing what he was doing and that's the the genesis of this book i sat down and said to myself what's the story here and and i spent 15 years reading everything and writing and putting it together until i began to really have this epiphany there's a hell of a lot more here than meets the eye and this guy's a theoretician 
right. who got to practice it, which is very rare. Well, one of the, the really interesting things about this book, and the reason it's not just a, I'm not, it's not just a straightforward military history because those are great, but you know this is the intelligence museum. But there's a huge section of this book that really focuses on Patton's use and understanding of intelligence work. I mean, right. I think that is a, a major revelation. That's what I found. One of the things most interesting about this is the time that he spent himself as an intelligence officer and his appreciation of intelligence. That really, you talked about this idea of him being kind of a, a, a theoretician and a practitioner together because you've argued, and I think there's a lot of evidence to back this up, that he's arguably the best educated, most experienced, and most widely read general in the U.S. I mean, he, he seems to be a preview of what you look at today, like the warrior monk mentality, the Petraeuses and the Mattises exactly. of the world, who, you know, are hard-charging generals with PhDs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that to me was a revelation. Yep. The um, patent intelligence is, is huge because he's a groundbreaker in the intelligence field. Um, we see other people thinking about maneuver and attacking your nerve centers, etc., but Patton's connection with the intelligence needed to make this all work starts very early on. And part of it, I think, deals with his roots in cavalry. Mm-hmm. Because you think about the infantry versus the cavalry. The infantry's whole modus operandi is to bring firepower on the enemy, close with, and destroy. And that lends well to this idea of mass and attrition warfare that Eisenhower practices and others. Patton's a cavalry guy. Cavalry's mission is... A big part of it is intelligence. Go out and find information on the enemy. Where are they? Screen the flanks. You know, recon. Do all those things. And so he takes that with him. Early on, he goes and sees things like when he's a young officer in the, the Mexican expedition. He realizes that every time we stop, the situation changes. You know, we see the enemy. We stop to figure out what's going on and do a quick plan. These bandits run away. The action is related to the reality on the ground. And that is an essence of intelligence, you know. Not only finding out where they are, but where they're going to be. How do our actions change the situation? What does that tell us? Right. He began to relate all those things. At the end of World War I, he's laying in the hospital recuperating. And he writes this big paper about the ideal staff officers. And he writes very revelatory things about G2s and what they should be doing. All the sources they should be checking out. That goes forward to where, you know, in World War II, Koch says other generals write their plan. Then they go to their, their two and say, show me, you know, how, what do you think about this? What does the enemy do? Confirm the intelligence out there right. to match my plan. Koch said Patton would go and say, two, what's it look like out there? And then he would create his plan. And he would create his plan so that it would start out in a certain way. And then he would look to see if the enemy was doing the things he anticipated or doing something different, and he would adjust on the fly. He would create the plans based off decision points rather than big arrows. That, and try, He wouldn't try to make the reality conform to his plan. He would adjust the plan to conform to reality. And he could only do that if he could see and understand what was going on out there. And that's the realm of intelligence. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the fact that his, his focus was about where to beat the enemy, not how. Exactly. You know, kind of probing for weak points, trying to find the most effective way of, of defeating the enemy. And, and this is to get a little wonky and our, our audience can handle it. The, the idea of like the classic Yeomany idea of 
what Eisenhower and Bradley kind of embrace versus almost a, a classic Klotzwitzian right. idea. Um, you know, that really puts these huge personalities against each other. Or, you know, Ike and Bradley were like, find the enemy, kill the enemy, hit their, you know, take our force and hit them in their, their biggest uh, area so that we can destroy the enemy. Whereas Patton was like, that's stupid. Right. That's a good way to get a lot of people killed. Right. Um, I, and, and I, I want to ask you, you talk about this a little bit in the book, really this idea of how much of what the Germans were doing at the time did Patton embrace and, and kind of assimilate into his own ideas? Because the, the, the idea of Ostrock tactique and you know, war of movement, I, the whole Blitzkrieg nonsense comes after the war. It's really Bewegenskrieg, right? War of movement, trying to find weak points. That's why the Germans don't attack the Maginot Line. They go around it. I mean, yeah. is Patton watching this? And he is. Embrace? Not only is he watching what the Germans were doing at the time, especially guys like um, uh, Von Sieg, you know, he's looking at, um, not only the things they were doing from World War Two, World War One, all the way up to the dawn of World War Two, he was looking at Gneisenau, Scharnhorst, and Frederick the Great, especially. But there's a difference in what they were doing and what he does. Now, the first part of my book is the four things that are the principles of Patton's way of war, and it starts with purpose. Okay, um, doctrine. You know, the uh, Field Service Regulations, 1927, they and 21, they they put up front that our mission is to close with and destroy the enemy. Destruction of the enemy's forces is the mission. Patton says no. The mission is destroy the enemy's will to fight. You have to break his will. And he comes up with this new calculus of war. What he says is that instead of bringing maneuver to bring firepower on the enemy, which is the essence of the attrition model, I want to use firepower to spring loose maneuver. So he reverses that. Instead of having the predominance on the infantry, it's going to be on mobile, or which becomes armor, basically. He says that you move in order to present unanticipated threat upon the enemy. Shock. Right. Physical and psychological. Which is really an old school way of fighting war. I yes, mean, if you is. go back to when weapon systems were incapable of killing massive amounts of people, the idea was, now we're, the two of us, the, the full... Uh, disclosure to our audience out there: the two of us uh, studied under one of the same people, so we're kind of now hearkening back to University of Maryland grad school at this point. Um, the idea was to make them want to run away, was to destroy the will of the enemy. This is going back to pre-industrial warfare. It does, but when you look at the American tradition, especially from the Civil War, the Grantian tactics. When you look at you know Russell Wigley talks about this a lot, the idea of mass. Uh, industrialization, warfare, pile on the enemy and destroy them. That model is validated in World War One, according mm -hmm. to Pershing and others. They reinvent the understanding of Clausewitz to say that this is what he's talking about. That idea is what is dominant in the U.S. military and a lot of the Germans too. The Germans even though they're talking about blitzkrieg kind of tactics and things, they're actually talking about breakthroughs to bring this cauldron battle together mm -hmm. where you can pile pop firepower on the enemy and destroy them, you know, envelop them. Pat's not saying that. He's saying that you create the shock, and once you create the shock upon the enemy by unexpected positioning of threat, you have to keep it going. You have to repeat it quickly. So he says that a shock, a repeated shock, frustrates the enemy's plans. For example, 
you break through the flank. The enemy sees you. Whoa, you're on my flank. They adjust. If you give them time to adjust, you lose the value of the shock. But if you can present a second unexpected threat when they are adjusting for the first one, now they have to re-plan for that one. And by the time they reorient on that one, they have to plan for another one. Patton saw this. He recognized it in uh, Guderian's breakthrough in the beginning of World War II, you know, in the, in the uh, attack on France. Guderian was doing this. Even though Guderian was ordered three times to stop by Hitler to let the infantry catch up, he refused. And the French re reports were saying, this is unexpected warfare. This is something new. We don't have time to adjust to any of these threats. The frustration, repeated and sustained, destroys the morale, which undercuts the will. So, fire to develop maneuver, maneuver to deliver shock, repeated shock in order to frustrate the enemy's planning cycle. Frustration leads to the collapse of morale, which therefore brings about right. the collapse of will. That's the intention that Patton's trying to create. We'll have more of this in a moment, but have you ever wondered how vulnerable your car is to a dedicated cyber attack? It's easy to get freaked out by what we see on TV every day, especially when these kinds of attacks are happening around the world. But we can't just unplug and hope the bad guys go away. Too much of our lives are online, including many of the newest cars. Wouldn't it be helpful if there are knowledgeable people who would be willing to tell us what is and isn't possible? Well, the new podcast, Hackable, from McAfee, is out to show you. Jeff Siskin and his team of cybersecurity experts conduct in-depth experiments to uncover the truth about cyber attacks. If you remember Kit 2000 from Knight Rider, you'll be intrigued to listen to this episode out this week. They spoke with the voice of Kit himself, William Daniels, and picked his brain for thoughts on self-driving cars and our overly connected world. Then they took the experiment on the road and allowed one of their friendly hackers to go at their rental car to see how or if he could hack into it. Look, as I've told you before, I know the SpyCast audience is not your normal podcast audience. It's safe to say that many of you know a whole lot about the subject of cyber. But what's cool about this podcast is it does a pretty great job working the space between being accessible to novices with little information in the field and still providing solid information for those, let's say, more well-versed in the subject. This is information that comes straight from McAfee's experts, empowering people with specific things they can do to make their digital lives more secure. Good for your grandmothers and your neighbor who works for NSA. So, how worried should we be about our computerized cars? Listen to Hackable, now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. What, what I love it, from you know the, some of the criticisms of Patton after the war, I love this kind of sardonically, is that a lot of the criticism is that yeah, he did well, but he his big victories were against like weaker parts of the army, weaker. And that's like, that's the whole point. Exactly. Right? He's not trying to go head to head with the strong parts. He's using intelligence to find the soft, squishy parts. And, and it's exactly true. And he gets frustrated this over and over again because his idea of exploiting these weaknesses and repeated shock is not the army doctrine. So when he executes this and demonstrates how it can be done, Bradley and others who are over him in the chain of command go, what in the hell is he doing? This is no way to fight a war. He demonstrates it in the Louisiana maneuvers, and McNair and others say, what in the hell is this guy doing? This isn't how you fight a war. He demonstrates it in combat, and he's ordered to stop it. What are you doing? But the results of it prove remarkably effective, and everybody wants to embrace the results, but they don't understand the method. But there's two, three other things I want to say here. That's the first part of Patton's new way of war. Second part is he had to figure out a tool to be able to accomplish this method. And that's not just tanks, 
but I show in the, in the chapter on this is that it's, he's a combined arms guy. He believes in infantry, mobile infantry, mobile artillery, ar- armor, and air power. Then he says we have to have a better way of making this happen because you have to have a, a command control system that's flexible and agile enough to sustain these shocks over and over again. You can't stop, take a timeout, plan, reorganize, bring up logistics, and then move forward again because that undermines the sustained shocks. Patton says we've got to have a better way, and that's where he borrows a lot from the Germans with mission tactics. Mm-hmm. He says that we've got to have a flexible command and control. We've got to have mission tactics. And you've got to train your subordinates to use their initiative to lead right. the attack. It's the idea more of saying, here is the end game I want you to accomplish. Right. I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do it because I'm not going to be physically on the ground fighting with you. Exactly. You figure out the best way to get from point A to point B because I'm going to trust you to do that. And this is different than synchronization. A lot of people are confused on this, but synchronization is bringing everybody in to plan at the right point in time. But generally, it's it's planned. Here's when you're going to move forward. Here's what you're waiting for to go for. Patton believed in creating harmony on the battlefield. He gives his famous speech in the... uh, Patton bowl down and bending to his second armor division where he says, you musicians of Mars, you can't wait for the director to signal you when to come in. You have to know when to jump in to create harmony. You know, and that's what he's looking for. The last thing on this four parts to his uh, radical way of war is intelligence. And he's, you know, Bradley says at one point, I studiously avoided any assignments to intelligence branch when I was an officer because that's where all the dregs were, were thrown in, right? And he was very proud of that fact. Patton served twice as a G2 for divisions, 1920, uh, 1926, 1935, both times in Hawaii, which was important because there's only two fully formed divisions in the U.S. Army during, between the wars, Panama and Hawaii, and Hawaii was the one that actually got to do some maneuvers and things. So his experience there, he embraced it, and he learned a lot, and he developed what I call, you know, uh, integrated and layered intelligence. He brought it all in, so he could see in almost four dimensions what the enemy is going, what he's doing, what he's going to do. And there's another thing to this too. It's important. A lot of what Patton's doing is inside decision cycles. So it gets to John Boyd's theories on OODA loops and mm-hmm. decision cycles. And you know that the OODA loop is, you know, observation, orientation, decision, and action. But Patton's other area of intelligence is that historical background he carries with him right he's read so much that i believe that his sense of uh his sense of reincarnation is actually because he is so embedded these ideas of history that he's read that he's created mental templates that seem very real to him like he's experienced them before and he draws upon that to validate and create you know an understanding of what's happening out front to the point where he's added another dimension to the OODA loop, anticipation. He's not just observing in the first phase, all, you know, 360 panoramas, see where the enemy is. In his mind, he goes, well, historically, it makes sense that they would come from this way. Mm-hmm. This would be the most likely course of action. Or maybe over here, and he's focusing on the like, so that in his observation cycle, he's actually got a head start because he's anticipating what the enemy is going to do. And we see that, for example, in his reaction to the breakthrough in the bulge. He's already got plans he's put together right. to respond to it. Well, you, you look at his knowledge of the past. He almost is his own intelligence analyst in many respects. He's not just being fed, already analyzed, already processed information. He's taking raw data and understanding what it means better than a lot of other people. 
might during that time. It's, that's true, but also he does power down a lot because, for example, Oscar Koch is given more leeway for an intel man than any any other G2 in Army level or higher during the war. And um, Patton has worked with him enough to where he has that confidence in him. He's almost an alter ego. But if you look, I put a diagram together of all the different systems that you know Patton's drawing off, from the Free French Forces mm-hmm. to Ultra to his own interviews with German prisoners of war. But those arrows ultimately all point to Patton. You know, his twos don't tell him, here's what the enemy's going to do. Right. His twos say, here's what I'm seeing out there. And Patton says, okay, now I'll devise what, what I think he's going to do. Yeah, I mean, the, the greater understanding the role of all source intelligence, just like not disregarding anything, looking at signals intelligence, like ultra and imagery intelligence from photographic reconnaissance. I, it seems to me that he's very good... And he learned a lot, maybe during the Mexican punitive wars, about geospatial intelligence, mm-hmm. about understanding terrain. I mean, you you always hear people looking back at people like Frederick the Great and Napoleon and how they, under almost as a sixth sense, right. they could look at a battlefield and understand what the terrain what was going to, to affect the battle. And Patton seemed to have that, and we all know it's not a sixth sense, but have that intuition yep. about the how the battlefield would play out and that comes true in, in, in North Africa and then certainly in Europe. And it's a key part of that is like Napoleon, he incorporated that idea into his plans that I will see and then I'll fight. You know, he, he says to himself, We're gonna start moving in this direction and at a certain point I will then see the battlefield and because I have that ability to see time and space unfolding I'll know which course of action to go to from that point onwards, where his peers would look at him and say, well, that's not good planning because you have to have all the way through to the objective. And he would, he would know that the situation is going to change as we begin. Right. Von Mulkey, no plan survives the first shots, and I will adjust on the fly. But I will adjust according to my intelligence telling me what the potentialities are out there. I mean, not just where they are, but what they can do. When I, I absorb that into my plans, I know what we can do, where we're going to be. And he has written down or in his head those three or four different courses of action that will most make sense and be right. most effective at that point of the battle. Well, and you talked prior about how other generals, uh, his peers, uh, people like Bradley and Montgomery, didn't have this philosophy that they, they use intelligence to kind of confirm what their plan already was. And it doesn't allow them to adapt. I mean, a lot of people know of the battle, the Operation Market Garden, and, you know, the great movie made about it. And, you know, it's like, oh, they almost did it. You know, it was, but it was one screw up after the next. And the screw ups really lead all the way back to Montgomery, well, who, who just refused to change his perception of the battlefield when he was handed important information. You're exactly right. When they showed him that German panzer units were placed on the battlefield that he had anticipated when he wrote his plan. Montgomery says, well, they must be wrong. Yeah. This brings out two points. One is not only his failure to, to account for the start position, you know, where the enemy is, when it's brought to him. Patton was the only one who actually was, was planning and using intelligence to be done as the battle unfolds, not just prior to the, the start point, but he wanted to know what's going on as the battle unfolds, and he would adjust to that. He incorporate it. He embraced it. And it wasn't just accidental. I, you talk in the book about how the Third Army, which was Patton's army, it, the G2 shop was much bigger yeah. than it normally. I mean, he took a lot of... There was planning involved in this, and I think that's what you know people 
misrepresent about kind of him pulling stuff out of his ass. No, there's a prior proper planning in this case. It's he had a huge G two shop. He really took it seriously. Held extra briefs for his commanders. Looked at the big picture. Um, had maps up of the Russian front. Right. Talk about the big big picture. He wanted to know what was happening on the Russian front, other Italy, etc. So that any German units disappeared from his fronts, where were they? That was his trigger in October of 44 that made him think something's coming up on our front. And Koch sees these units disappear from the Russian front. Koch then asks on October 16th for aerial reconnaissance done in front of First Army. And so he starts looking, and by the end of October, early November, he's identified two major buildup areas in front of First Army. German buildup yes. areas, yeah. One operates during the daytime. One is operating at night. Koch deduces that the one in daytime must be a, a decoy, and the one at night's where the real buildup is. And that's when he begins to realize we could see a counterattack against First Army. We could see a counterattack against the planned Third Army breakthrough, or we could see some sort of you know new defensive lines. And Patton turns to Maddox's three and says, start contingency plans for all three of those. A month later, when the attack comes out of the bulge, he's ready for it. Well, and, that, and that's another misconception about the Battle of the Bulge is that it's this massive surprise and we were caught with our pants down. Not everybody was. No, and um, not only uh, was it, you know, we could say that Bradley was surprised or Hodges was surprised. or You know, the eve, on December 15th, eve of the, the attack, uh, Montgomery had released his estimate of the situation where he said, the Germans cannot do any offensive action until spring. You know, it's absolutely impossible. And he, he lays out what's going to happen. Well, 24 hours later, he's proven wrong. Patton, or Bradley's own, too, uh, Monk, had identified just days prior that, oh, there's probably going to be an attack, and it's going to be coming out of the Ardennes. And he was told, take a vacation. You're overworked. <laughs> oh, oops. Um, you also talk about the fact that Patton embraces psychological operations. And, and does this... It seems self-evident that this feeds into the breaking the will concept that Patton has. Um, how how much is this? How much does this play a role? The idea of kind of altering the enemy's perception of yeah. how the battle's going. He does the same kind of psyops operations everybody else does on the ground with the speaker jeeps and all those sort of things. But he does something different too. His psychological operations are, are multifaceted. One is he realizes that there is a definite connection between what the enemy understands, his perception of the, of the threat, and my activity. And he begins to realize things like, very early on, he realizes that, you know, uh, in the old days when we had all infantry on the front line moving forward, if information got to me 20 minutes late from the battlefield to me after 20 minutes, not too bad. Because there's only so far that an army can move in 20 minutes. But with armor moving, it's a big difference, you know. Uncertainty is created by the delay between what's perceived on the ground, you know, or in the headquarters, and the reality on the ground. The transmission of information from one point to the other allows for so much movement that that movement creates more uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And he embraced the idea of creating uncertainty. This was the greatest psychological threat against the enemy. We create fear in the enemy with fire from the rear. We create fear in the enemy by creating uncertainty. So that's why you must keep moving, keep moving forward, you know. It wasn't just to gain ground or gain headlines. It was to create uncertainty in the enemy. He said that battle is an orgy of dis disorder, that we must embrace and exploit the chaos 
we must be better prepared to do that. And having better intelligence systems is a huge part of that. Well, that's a key to that, right? If you know more than the enemy does, you can constantly keep them guessing. And if you have just a little bit more information about how the battle is unfolding, then you have a huge advantage. Right, that's two, two sides of the coin. Yeah. One is my information systems that keep me informed. The other is my movement operations that discombobulate the enemy by keeping him uninformed, mm -hmm. creating uncertainty in his mind. So what I want to do is I want to create the chaos that I know I can operate in better than he can. And if I do that, I can destroy his ability to plan adequately against the threats I'm going to place against him. It seems analogous somewhat to the, the U.S. military in the last couple of decades fighting at night, you know, where we have a distinct advantage of kind of knowing. Well, we do against certain enemies, well, and we won't right. against other enemies. Wait, I was saying in the last couple of decades. Yeah, it's, <laughs> against, <laughs> against selected opponents, yes. <laughs> but we can't, we can't, the danger there is that we start thinking ourselves very good at that right. environment when we're going to go up against other opponents who are going to be just as ready as we are. Yeah. We'll talk more about George Patton in just one minute, but let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people. Of course, who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending and it can take a huge amount of time. Time we don't have as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just a single click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's what makes ZipRecruiter different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. It's a little different than it was before. Right? That's a different title. But now it's ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. You talked about Ultra already, but it, it is interesting to me about how well Patton used Ultra, about how much he embraced these ideas. He had a dedicated Ultra officer you met with every single day and, and he kind of, you know, this is, this is a, a program, you know, that most people have heard of, but there are huge discrepancies about how well certain officers and certain commanders use this information versus others. And yeah. Patton seems to be at the top of the spectrum of people and, who embraced it. And there's a lot to that. When they first start putting out ultra liaisons, they were civilians and um, Patton got one of the few that was actually a regular army officer and helpers who went to VMI. When um, Koch first has helpers there, he doesn't bring helpers to Patton early on like in Sicily and other places. It's when he's, the, the Mortain attack is, is starting to unfold. Helfers is reading the ultra intercepts and he sees these words directly from Hitler that this is you know the big gamble, this is the, the future of the Reich is depends on this. And he said, when he saw that, he goes, I think Patton needs to know this. So he tells Koch, Koch says, all right, come with me. And he introduces Helfer to Patton. Patton has no idea what's, what is this. 
And he says, well, you know, we're getting these intercepts. It goes through this man. And so Patton starts asking Helfers, tell me what you've known in the past. When did you know it? And he says, usually I know what the Germans are doing 24 hours in advance. Patton says, then you have carte blanche to come to me anytime and see me at 6 in the morning every day before the briefs. I want you to brief me personally. And he became the only ultra officer to personally brief an Army-level commander every single day. You know, and he had free reign to, open, to knock on the door, walk in, and tell Patton what he's seeing. And that's how, that's how open Patton was to all these sources of information. And it wasn't his only source. You know, it was part of the integrated package. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it really is an example of how Patton was mentally hungry for information from all sources. And he's also just skeptical enough to make sure he's checking against other sources. Well, I, I think there's a word that usually doesn't get applied to Patton in this case, and that he's humble enough to know that the best information may come from some peon on the ground. I yeah. mean, you and I were different ranks. We we're both armor, you know, but both of us have known two and three star generals and four star generals. And it's they do lip service to talking to the average soldier on the ground. But Patton seemed to say, look, this French resistance guy may know the key piece of information or yeah. this soldier who just came off the front who's a corporal, may know an important piece of information that I need to know about. Yep. And he had seemed to have no problem just walking up and being like, tell me what you know. More than that, um, this relates to some, it's a, it's a thread throughout this book, but you go back to when Patton was um, in World War I. As an armor officer, he talks to JFC Fuller and he talks to Jean Destien and he talks to these other great innovators. And he realizes that there's huge importance in how you use these tanks and your personal knowledge of the situation out in the front. The terrain, is it chewed up? Is it marshy area? What is it like? And the only way you can do that is if you go out yourself and look at it. He does this. And he also begins to realize, because he, he's creating the first armored units, he goes out and talks to the French soldiers who are in tanks. And he talks to the French infantry who are working with the tanks. And he begins to realize, when I talk to these frontline soldiers directly, I begin to understand things that I can't get from talking to these top-level generals. I can't get from theory. And he begins early on to insist that his officers, and he does this even when he's third army commander, he makes the staff officers go to the front, see what's going on. His G3 liaisons become a source of intelligence. He goes to the front constantly. You know, there's, um, there's a uh, passage by um, uh, Andy Rooney in his biography, that Pat never went to the front. He's one of, something wrong he he went to the front more than anybody and he says in his diaries you know that only by talking to the guys you know in north africa i didn't realize what it was like till i went out there and looked at those guys and saw how the cold was affecting their morale you know he began to realize his men's ability and what more they could take by spending a lot of time out there with them and he made sure his staffs did that too because they could only create plans that were true to the situation on the front if they had spent time out there with those guys. Right. He also realized, like, he encouraged the initiative by his individual soldiers from the front. And he could only do that if they saw he was willing to take their information, take what they're doing. There's um, examples when he was a brigade commander and at the, at the uh, creating the armor training school in France in World War I, where he said, you tell me, what's, what should we be doing? And then the privates on the ground were writing up suggestions, and he would incorporate them and then publicly thank that guy. That tells everybody else, you know, the old man's willing to listen to us. 
Desert Training Center. He put it together, same thing, and he carries it on forever. You know, he is a he is a strict disciplinarian, and he is a martinet in a lot of ways. You know, but the the ground troops loved the guy, and one of the reasons why was because they knew he was open to their mm-hmm. feelings and ideas. Let me shift a little bit. One one of the most famous stories or infamous stories about Patton is his role in the deception operation leading up to D-Day, which we know that wasn't his idea, that he hated the fact that he had been somewhat sidelined. But he carried it out well. I mean, I think that, you know, the the deception operation of putting him in charge of this phantom army Mm -hmm. um, uh, that was part of the uh, misdirection to make the Nazis think that Calais was the actual invasion point instead of Normandy. Uh, you talk a little bit about it in the book, but from what, from what you've looked at Patton, you know, the last 15 years, uh, is there anything that is, is a kind of a misconception? Yeah, I'll give that? you one. Um, I thought his role in Fuskag, you know, the first U.S. Army group, that's the, the notional army they created, yeah. um, I thought that it was much more effective than I think it really was. In um, April '44. He goes to give the speech at Nutsford to the to the uh, women's association, and um, what's interesting about that is it makes headlines because he gives a speech where he says it seems it's the obvious destiny of the Americans, the British, and he says the Russians to rule the world after this war. You know, we need to get to know each other, and groups like this help us do that. It becomes big news because it's quoted as him leaving the Russians out, not mentioning the Russians, so the British and the Americans. It's become scandalous. And um, when I read the recounts of him speaking, everybody says he actually included the Russians in the speech. So I'm confused about the role of this. Well, it turns out that the Germans had not acknowledged Patton as being part of this invasion force at Calais. They had not acknowledged that he was in England, which is strange because you would think that, you know, th- th- this is all from the diaries of the, uh, of the OKW and the mm-hmm. top levels of Germans. And obviously, the Americans wanted them to think Patton was in command of this unit, associate him with that unit, because that adds to the perceived threat to Calais. That would pin down German units there. This big brouhaha breaks out. Patton's reprimanded, you know, called in, told to shut up. He can't figure out what's going on. He thinks he's going to be relieved, not be part of the invasion. Well, Churchill goes to see Eisenhower. Churchill knows about everything Eisenhower is doing because Kay Summersby reports to Churchill. So, so Churchill goes to see Eisenhower and it says, this thing with Patton, I wouldn't worry about it. It's a tempest in a teapot. And I'm curious, I was thinking to myself, why would Churchill get involved in this? Yeah. I, I suspect that the whole thing was orchestrated. It was, the, the event itself was orchestrated by the you know, public affairs from the British War Ministry. And I think it may have all been an effort to advertise Patton right. because... Right after that incident occurs, that's the first time OKW identifies Patton as being there as part of 1st U.S. Army Group. And they attach a moniker to him as commander of that group that they keep on him after he arrives in France. Hmm. So you talk about, you know, information yeah. operations. Right, an extra level to the deception that no one really thought about before was... Hey, they're not getting this. How do we advertise that Patton's actually here? And the sad thing is, the reprimand on him after that incident was that he couldn't speak to any of his units, that he had been actively training up for this breakout that he had, he had in mind for Normandy. Right. And so it really hurt our efforts 
for the real operation in order to advertise him for the fake operation. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, the legend of Patton, some of the impact uh, that he had on the U.S. military. Uh, we talked earlier about like there are a lot of soul searching after World War II, trying to figure out how do we avoid, you know, the hundreds of thousands of deaths. And there is, of course, the what most people know is the the famous story of Patton arguing, essentially the end of the Cold War before it started, and round up the German soldiers and march on to Moscow. This really essentially makes him a pariah mm-hmm. after the war. How much does that play into the? kind of the repudiation of his broader strategies and tactics because of um, kind of the legend that grows after after Patton starts talking about fighting the Soviets. There's, um, there's some real-world connection to this. Uh, Secretary of War Patterson's over there, and here's Patton talking this way, and kind of uh, dismisses him as being, you know, just a loudmouth. But the real change, the real occurrence is that Eisenhower and Marshall and others decided that, hey, the war's over with. This is the war to end all wars, right? The Russians are our allies. There's no threats out there. We don't need these fighters, these uncontrollable guys. We need diplomats. We need guys who are skilled, not only diplomatically dealing with the rest of the world, but diplomatically dealing with the other services as unification is going to be forced upon the military. So they start grooming their own guys, like Collins and others, that are going to be acceptable, palatable, and can operate in this new bureaucratic environment. Patton and almost all his commanders are all cashiered. You know, it's very strange to me still that they would keep a guy like Patton, who's considered to be this firebrand and you know once warmonger, etc. Why in the world would you keep him as governor of Bavaria yeah. in charge of Third Army groups there? Why would you do that when you could easily move him out to the War College or to West Point or some other place? And he wanted to go there. Those went to diplomatic guys. Patton gets stuck here. He asked repeatedly for another assignment. Eisenhower insists on keeping him there. Even after Eisenhower leaves to go to his next assignments, he leaves Patton in that spot, which is very weird to me. Well, and Patton's in charge of this denazification program, which he... There was a lot of controversy there, but he made an argument that will sound very familiar to anyone involved in Operation Iraqi Freedom in 03 or 04 or 05 when the debathification policy left a huge vacuum of anyone who knew how to do anything. Yeah. That was the same argument Patton's making at the time, too, and saying, hey, look, the only way to get a good job is to pretend that you're a Nazi or to claim that you're a Nazi, but these are all the... Not only the bankers, but the people who are the engineers, the people who can run businesses, the people who can run water plants and everything else. And if you fire them all, then what the hell are you going to do? Yeah, he, um, he, there's several things that occur. One is that you know, Patton was a Francophile. He wasn't really pro-German, but he did admire the German military. He hates the Nazis, obviously. You read his rhetoric during the war. He's encouraging his guys to kill the Nazis. He also personally is... Um, very saddened by the end of the war. He realizes this is the end of his utility on earth. You know, this is the end of him, his persona, his identity. So there's lots of emotional things going on. He also is losing his men. You know, the the fire and brimstone speeches that they just ate up a year earlier, they don't want to hear anymore. They want to go home. Right. So all these emotions are going on in him. Then he's put in in a job he really doesn't want to do, and he sees all these German refugees who are suffering, etc., 
And he also is being exposed to a lot of people who are, you know, pro-Soviet at the time that want to get rid of Nazis. And obviously the Russians have great reason for wanting to destroy the Nazis. He also sees another enemy against the Germans who are, who are fighting, and that's the Jews. And obviously the Jewish community has great reason for destroying Nazism, right? right? But through all these different things, he has Polish generals and priests coming to him and telling him the stories about the atrocities of the Russians in Poland. And he begins to, all this is bubbling up in his mind, all these different streams at the same time. He actually is removing the Nazis from all the positions. There's two or three different classifications of Nazis. And the top classification has to be removed from office, and they are all removed from office. The second level is 98% removed, and he's still working to get the other guys out. But he says, I need the guy who runs the power plant. I need the, the chief doctor at this hospital. When I get a replacement for them, then we'll move with them. But it's a very, very small number. The problem is that his other statements about, you know, we got to get the yeah. gyrons on our side and go beat the Nazis or beat the Russians, all those statements become convoluted and things get out of hand to where the point where he says, he's asked the question, he doesn't come up with this on his own, but he's asked the question, why don't you say the Nazis are like you know, Democrats or Republicans back home? It's a political party that the average Joe had to join. And he goes, yeah, I guess that's about true. Well, that feeds the fire people who want to get him out of there and they really don't care about getting Patton out of there they get they care about getting people like Falber you know the, art, the cardinal and the and Stogner and the, the the chief of civilian government officials to remove these guys and replace them with socialist people and that's the real effort Patton they see as a bulwark of, of keeping Christian Democrats and others in positions when they want them removed right and, and it becomes this firestorm and this, this perfect storm of all kinds of interests at the same time. That is a precursor, though, to the narrative I give about his legacy in the Army after the war. Because it feeds the notion of warrior equals maverick. You know, and we need those guys out because we need more pliable diplomatic, you know, uh, uh, people with... Uh, the ability to deal with others right. in command. Right on the heels of that, you have things like the revolt of the admirals. You have the revolt of the colonels. You've got Douglas MacArthur in Korea. You've got this you know, sequence of things to where finally when Eisenhower becomes president and generals say, we don't like the new look military. We don't like mutual assured destruction. He says, well, you're fired. Right. <laughs> get somebody else in there. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. Yeah. Well, then you get really political leaders like Max Taylor under, under Kennedy and LeMay and others who actually become politicians themselves. Yeah, but Taylor and others, you know, they, they're thinking about uh, having a diverse toolbox for the military, of, you know, from, from counterinsurgency to nuclear weapons. We're going to have this whole array of things to deal with all the different threats we see. And that's not acceptable. When you wind up getting rid of anybody who thinks outside the box, you wind up falling back on traditional doctrine Ergo, the movement from once we get rid of MacArthur and strategic maneuver, we wind up with meat grinder tactics, literally meat grinder tactics in Korea, yeah. and it carries over to where we go to massive firepower in Vietnam, and it's not until we have this sudden reappearance of Patton with the movie comes out, Nixon's inspired not only to try to intervene on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but to get a patent guy in Creighton Abrams, Creighton Abrams to yeah. lead the army, who picks another patent guy in Depew to create Tradoc. And they wind up seeing you know, the lessons from the 73 war. I, say how much, I was about to ask you how much was the Middle East war 
67 and 73, just the use of armor and maneuver and, and anti-armor and everything else all combined that. Not all of it. And the, the uh, success in 67 breeds overconfidence right. in 73, which is, you know, I, I barely touch on this part. But what I do get to in 73 is the uh, situation on the Golan Heights, where the Israelis are almost being overwhelmed. They have one last tank brigade on a Musha pellet, and they bring it forward. They say, okay, go up and plug the gap. The pellet says, no, no. What we should do is what Patton would do, hold him by the nose on the heights. I will swing around, kick him in the ass with maneuver. And um, he does this, reverses the course of the war in the north, and drives all the way to the, straits of Dam- or to the gates of Damascus. Where did he learn it? Pellet was one of the first Israeli officers to go to the U.S. Army Armor School, where the tactics branch was put together by Creighton Abrams. Mm-hmm. It was still 4th Armored Division and Patton's 3rd Army. It was Patton's doctrine taught there. It's the only place in the U.S. Army where it was taught. Pellet's lesson, his experience, what he had done, gets absorbed by Don Starry and others and lays the groundwork for the creation of Airland Battle Doctrine. Right, yeah. That, 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 those of them around the military long enough uh, have heard of this. It's not a term that gets thrown around all that much anymore because, you know, coin and everything else replaced it to a degree. But Airland Battle is really the philosophy that leads us into the 1980s and the 1990s. I mean, if you want to understand Airland Battle, for the most part, it's Desert Storm, yeah. right? And I go through, you know, FM's, Army field manuals on operations from the end of the Vietnam War up to Airland Battle and show how Patton was incorporated, reflected, mentioned in those doctrines. And you know, by the time you get to the Airland Battle doctrine, he is all over the place in the, in the manual. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, his influence, guys like um, uh, McCaffrey saying, you know, Patton, be proud of the, what we did here. You know, the, it's his spirit. Schwarzkopf mentions him when he talks about mm-hmm. how we operated. I point out, though, there were very, very big differences between airland battle as applied in the Gulf War and what Patton would have done. You know, for the first several weeks of the Gulf War, it was a war of attrition. Yeah. We were just pounding them, just like artillery in World War One. You know, and then we did one huge sweep. We didn't do some serious sustained shocks that would completely paralyze their military and bring them down. We blinded them. We did this huge shock, one big shock with a sweep. But it wasn't quite what Patton had in mind. And it was synchronized. It wasn't an application of true mission tactics where people are going to come in. There's lots of different things that are incorporated there. There's a lot that was patent, right. true, but there's differences that need to be acknowledged. Would something, in your, as an armor officer, I think I, it's fair to ask you this. Would something smaller on a micro level, like 73 Easting, you know, the famous McMaster battle, that, would that be patent-esque in kind of the way it was adapt on the fly allow your subordinate commanders, even in that case, McMaster was not very highly ranked, but he had units that were able to kind of move off platoons uh, on their own. I, I'm putting you on the spot on this. I'm not well, sure. but 73 Easting is an example of subordinate initiative. It's a tactical battle. It's not yeah, operational right. art. Patton's more into the operational art. But um, it's subordinate initiative. It's aggressive. You know, and, and it's an example of a great action by a company task team commander. And so... Um, uh, I, I I would say that's that's McMaster. That's not Patton. Yeah. But it was a great job. You know? <laughs> Let me ask you about today, because uh, we may be as far away from these concepts as we've been for quite some time with the kind of battles that we're fighting around the world, coin specifically. And then, you know, the sad part, I, I, I went through basic training at Fort Knox, 
Uh, I went through the obstacle course that's in stripes. Yeah, he's wiping yeah. a tear away right now. Yeah, I know. It's just, oh, Knox. The, the worst four months of my life in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. But there's no more Knox. The U.S. Army Armor Center has basically now been folded into... I, I, we all embrace combined arms, but we, have we gone a little too far? I finished this book initially with the Gulf War. And then my publishers came back and said, Hey, um, would you add a... Another chapter in there about where we are today from this. So I put the last chapter in there, and it is a march to sadness. (laughs) Um, I'm an armor officer, you know, through and through. And um, I know when um, General Bob Brown, for example, was running Benning when we closed down the armor school and folded it in with the other arms down at Benning. And he said, you know, we've been waiting a long time for this. (laughs) You know, and then uh, General Chiarelli, who I've worked for different times over the years, you know, he came down to Knox and said, this isn't the end of the armor branch, you know, you guys. But if you look at the armor branch today, when, when a new armor officer is just as likely to be assigned to wheeled vehicles as he is to a tank, or maybe more likely, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we've, we've gotten away from a lot of things. Knox was created deliberately to keep armor away from infantry at Benning and cavalry, which was out at, at uh, Riley at the time, so that it could develop its own doctrine. That doctrine over the years became airland battle doctrine that's all being subsumed again and there's something lost in that that now i was at uh georgetown when uh white came and spoke to us secretary white and i asked him the question i said we're getting rid of you know armor we're we're going away from from you know triangular divisions which are maneuver warfare formations to square divisions again. We're getting rid of triangular battalions or brigades and going to basically, you know, two maneuver units and one scout unit and a battalion. I said, um, aren't we getting rid of the ability to do maneuver warfare? And he said, I understand what you're saying, but you gotta understand counterinsurgency is the alligator in the swamp and we gotta deal with the alligator in the swamp. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you got to have all those tools in the toolbox. Right. And so, yeah, I, that's why I put this last chapter in there, staying in, in my sandbox, saying what would Patton think and what are Patton's ideas, how are they being affected in today's mm-hmm. world? And I think that Patton would be very upset with what's happened to armor because, as I showed several times, we thought armor was dead. Yeah, no, And I'm every right. time armor turns out to be not only, not only alive, but decisive. Well, I mean, the decision to move things to Benning was made at the height of the global war on terror without any real perception of any kind of global great power threats. Now that we're starting to think in that direction again, I'm wondering when we, you know, I'm not sure it'll happen anytime soon. I wonder if there'll be a reassessment. There was, there's also social and cultural concerns because we wanted to get rid of branches. We want to get rid of branches so that it could be gender normed Mm -hmm. for higher command promotions. Uh, those kind of things also play into this decision. Okay? But now that doesn't matter anymore, really. I mean, yeah, now that you've got inclusive, inclusivity throughout the military, branches can you go back. You would think back. so. Yeah. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. We'd like to thank Hackable Podcast from McAfee and ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. You can check out Hackable through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. 
and you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. And the book is called Patton's Way, A Radical Theory of War. It is out now. It just came out, so you get a chance to read it uh, before anybody else does. I appreciate you writing this book. appreciate you taking the time to join us here today on uh, SpyCast. My pleasure.